Let me let us in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank and praise you that you're a God who speaks and that your word is powerful. We pray as we engage with uh, what might be controversial uh, part of the Bible this morning, that you might uh, help us to understand what you want us to understand and uh, to understand whose we are and what is you want us to do in this world. Amen. Well, people are fascinated by origin stories, whether it's fictional characters or their own origin story. Uh, recently in the movies, we've had Han Solo, Solo the movie, uh, to explain where, uh, where, how he became the lovable rogue. Uh, every superhero, they seem to either get their whole origin movie like Wolverine or the first half hours taken up by how they came to be who they were. Spider-Man, what's his origin story? Peter Peter Piper Peter Parker yeah Peter Parker picked a peck of pippers what happened to him where was he in a school excursion right um, that's not all of his origin story I mean that's an important part how he got his powers but key moment in his life his uncle dies and he's there and he says with great power comes great responsibility and he's got all these powers and so he feels like he's responsible now and he has to be responsible in society. Uh, Batman watches his parents killed and stuff, vows to get revenge on the underworld and he's going to do everything it takes to stamp out crime in Gotham City. Uh, things like that. But it's not just the movies. Uh, finding our own story has become a really popular thing. I mean, certain strange people used to do their family trees, but now Ancestry.com has made it super easy to do, and everyone seems to be doing it. Uh, and, and now you can even trace your, not just ancestry for the last couple of hundred years through the Australian records, or maybe 500 years if you can go back that far, but now you can do DNA testing and it'll show you whether there's a bit of Viking in you or a bit of Mongolian or something like that. We're, we're, we're fascinated by it. I don't know if you saw that show on SBS where Julia Zamero and Ernie Dingo and I think one of the Dado brothers uh, has, has their DNA done and they tour the world. Uh, we're fascinated. Why are we fascinated by origins? Well, because we feel like they ground us somehow. They give us a sense of identity and make us feel like we can get a handle on, on ourselves and our place. Here's a quote from someone on the front page of Ancestry.com. There you go. Uh, Through Ancestry, I discovered my family were always connected to the sea. Now I know why I am like I am. And he has his photo too. There you go. Now, that may be a bit of a long bow. Yeah, my family grew up near a beach long, you know, hundreds of years ago, and that's why I'm a surfer. I, I don't know about that. But there is something that is profoundly true about it that, that in knowing your origins, because all of us are products of the past. Uh, uh, we're products of experiences and choices we've made ourselves earlier in life uh, that have shaped who we are. But all of us are also products of decisions even taken by people long before us who we might not have even met. I'm an Australian because my parents decided to emigrate from England, right, in the 60s, and I was born here. And, and that shapes a whole lot of things about uh, what, what my food tastes are like and, and how I dress and, you know, how stylish I am, I'm, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> 
But, but it's more than that. The past explains something of what it means for you to be you. And it helps us know why, why we're here. It explains something of our purpose. And it helps us to know how we're connected to the world and, and what our place in it is. Today we're beginning a series uh, through this term on the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis. The, the title Genesis just means origins. Uh, this is the story, well, partly of where we came from. But it's not just about humanity and the origins of humanity that's mentioned, but it's the origin story of a bunch of other things as well. It's about the origin of evil. It's about the origin of violence. Uh, and most importantly, Genesis is really the origin story of a nation that would come to be known as Israel. Uh, it's mostly about one man, Abraham, and his family tree. Okay, that's, that's the bulk of the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 up to chapter 50, uh, so three quarters of it at least. Abraham's a man who, who God spoke to and promised to save the world through his family one day. And Abraham's story begins in chapter 12. So the first 11 chapters are really the background to understanding why Abraham, why is he needed, why does he need to be part, why does the world need saving in the first place? And today we're going right back to the start and looking at two of the most controversial chapters in the whole of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the opening two pages, if you haven't found it there, pages 1 and 2. Now my suspicion is that the controversies, whether they be about time frames like young earth, new earth, the speed of creation, whether it was days or eons, uh, dinosaurs, whatever the controversies might be, are only so heated not because of what science proves or disproves, but it's really because our world doesn't want to know or acknowledge that its origin and purposes are all found in God and that he might just have a say over who we are and what we do and how to think about life and the world and relationships. And so I think we need to clear our mind of all the controversies and the questions that we might have come with this morning if you knew we were doing Genesis. Okay, and... And frankly, I'm not going to even answer necessarily uh, some of the questions that are out there this morning, uh, although I'm happy to talk about them and tell you uh, what I really think of morning tea on those kind of questions. But I, I want us to clear our minds of those controversies so that we can take a fresh look at these two chapters and hear exactly what it is that God's got to say to us. Because they're actually quite profound as they address question, real questions. There are answers in Genesis, but they just might not be the answers to the questions that we're asking their answers to different questions. It addresses questions of meaning and purpose rather than questions of detail and mechanics. So let's dive into it. So chapters 1 and 2 of the Bible of Genesis are really two different accounts of creation, how God made the world and everything and everything. Yeah. They're not the only accounts of creation. There's, there's various other ones in the scriptures. John chapter 1 comes to mind. Colossians uh, 1 mentions it. And, and there's various other psalms and things. The end of the book of Job. And while Genesis 1 and 2, while some people uh, want to pit them against each other as if they're enemies of each other, the author didn't really think so, um, they're not telling a different story. It's the same story from two different points of view. And, and that's why we've kind of chosen to do the two together. And it's like the difference between the Hubble Space Telescope and the artist Van Gogh. Um, here's a picture taken from uh, the Hubble Space Telescope of... Anyone know... Oh, well, it says up there, doesn't it? That's a bit lame. 
<laughs> Gave the secret away. <laughs> uh, it's the galaxy Andromeda. That's, that's the nearest galaxy to our own galaxy. Uh, that's a, a beautiful photo of this amazing part of creation. Uh, here's another photo from Hubble uh, of uh, our own galaxy, or a little part of it, because you can only point the camera in one direction and it's all around us. But uh, that's, this is the Milky Way, or uh, you know, a segment of it. Uh, you compare that, though, to Van Gogh's most famous painting, which is Starry Night. It's exactly the same subject matter. They're both brilliant. They're describing the same reality, but from two completely different perspectives. I mean, there you've even got a town in the middle of it. You know, it's kind of from Earth, and it's just a sort of little localised viewpoint. Um, and, and that's the same with Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 1's a broad, sweeping vista from God's point of view. Chapter 2's the close-up from, from kind of our point of view. Both of them show us incredible things. They show us incredible things about God and about ourselves and about our world. But the focus is different and, and we learn so much more from both than just from one by itself. And so what I propose to do this morning is quickly go through each viewpoint and then come back and draw out some of the significant implications for us uh, from, from both chapters together, right? So let's go to the Hubble space view uh, first, Genesis chapter 1. It's the view from God's perspective. Uh, verse 1 tells us when God made the world, right? Uh, this is the only answer you're ever going to get to that question. When did God make the world? In the beginning, right? When he did, when he started. Uh, it doesn't say whether it's a long time ago or a short time ago or what, and you might want to argue from either way, and there's, there's pros and cons to that, but, but all we're told is we made it in the beginning. But notice a few things about the chapter. Notice, first, there's a, there's a common pattern that goes through the chapter. The same words are repeated over and over again on each day of creation. Uh, here we go. This is kind of the pattern that goes through it. And God said, let there be something. Uh, and there was that something. Uh, God saw that it was good. And then there was evening and morning on that particular day. Now, that, that pattern runs through the whole chapter. It's broken, uh, well, at least once. Important, and we'll come to that uh, in a little bit. But uh, what it's doing just by that pattern is highlighting a few different things. Okay, It's highlighting, in the very least, the power of God's word. And that's, that's going to set us up for the whole Bible. And God said, and there was. God just has to speak and the universe springs into being. Uh, everything jumps and organises itself according to his word. It, it's highlighting also the goodness of creation. Each day, God declares everything is, is good. Which doesn't mean moral, although there's a moral character to, to human life especially, but, but it's good in that it fits exactly with God's intention and purposes. It's, it's what he intended. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't say, let there be frogs and suddenly giraffes came out or anything like that. Right? He, he, he spoke and it happened just the way he said. And he said, yes, that's, that's what I want. It's good. He didn't make a mistake. God works with precision. But it's not just a repeated pattern of words. Because I don't know if you noticed something. Uh, someone had to show this to me a little while ago. But there's, there's this 
clever structure to God's creative purposes and the way he does it. See, on the first three days, one, two, and three, uh, if you're good at maths, uh, God creates a framework, if you like, for what he's going to make on days four, five, and six. It's like when you're building a house. You put in the foundations first and then you, you build the, the wooden struts, right? They, they all go out, the formwork. And, and it kind of looks house-shaped at that point. But it's not a home yet, is it? Because then they come back after they've made the formwork and they, they brick it over and they put in the PowerPoints and the furniture and all the features and the, the range hood that you've selected from wherever you select. And, and, and that's when it becomes a home. And, and that's kind of what's happening here in chapter 1. So let me show it to you as a table, putting the different parts next to each other. See, on the left, the, gr- the green, uh, are days 1 to 3, which are all about the formwork, the structure. And on the right... All the details are filled in, uh, the things that fill in the formwork. And so day one, for example, God makes the day and the night. Then day four, the parallel day, he fills in the day and the night sky with the sun and the moon and the stars, right? So formwork first and then what goes in that formwork. Day two, he separates the sea and the sky. Then day four, he fills in the sea and the sky with fish and birds, Okay, the creatures of the sea and sky. Day three, he makes the land, and on day six, he fills in the land with all the teeming life. That is, it's all thought out, and it's organised. It's beautifully arranged. And at each step, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Until the end of day six, when he doesn't say it's good. He doesn't say it's not good either. Um, But up until now, everything has been good. But at the end of day six, he looks and he sees. And it's not just good, it's very good. Very good. You see that in verse 31. That is, everything is exactly fitting. The the whole thing is complete. It's just what he planned. Things are as they should be. There's nothing more to do. But it's not just that it's finished that makes it very good. Like, you you know, that feeling when you... You finish that project at work that you've been working on for months, uh, or you know, uh, when you finally get round to cleaning out the garage, you've been putting it off and dreading it, and then you get it done, and you're like, yes, yes, now we can fill it with other junk. <laughs> There's something else that makes the whole thing very good at the end, and that is the last thing that was added as the pinnacle of God's creation. He puts something into his universe, into his world, that, that's different to everything else that he's made. It's unlike everything else. And, and, and at that point, it's when it breaks the pattern of the words. As suddenly the second half of the chapter focuses on this special thing that he's made, which is us, humanity. They are the focus of God's creation. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it, when you think about it? I mean, here is the entire universe coming into being at God's say-so. He's, he's flung stars and moons and, and birds and everything out there. And then suddenly he makes something that is so tiny in comparison, and yet it's so precious and important to him and to his purposes. That's what Psalm 8 is talking about when it says, 
what is man that you're mindful of the son of man that you care for him i mean you you look at and you think i'm i'm insignificant and i've had one of those moments out standing on a clifftop thinking why would god even care about something but he does and here's why because he's made you and he's made us as as the pinnacle of his creation he doesn't just speak us into being notice in breaking the pattern he has to deliberate over the people you know let us make man in our image in you know male and female and so on uh and and then he makes them and then then he does something that he's not done before and that is he speaks to them he doesn't just speak them into his he starts addressing them that is really weird isn't it that god the infinite creator of all things has made us as suitable communication partners for him okay you can speak to god and he he speaks to us and tells us well here he tells us what to do what is that's so unique about us so well firstly we're made in his image whatever that means we'll come back to that later but what does he tell these people made in his image have a look at verse 28 he blessed them that's the first thing he does right he's all his good intentions and plans are, are in them and he said be fruitful fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground everything i've made over days four five and six what's he saying to us he's saying you know what you're now in charge and that's the way it is, right? Even if that's a bit scary. You look around the room and the ants may get into your kitchen in an annoying, with an annoying frequency, but the ants don't run this place, right? We can, one spray and they're gone. The whales, they're enormous, uh, but they don't threaten us. We threaten them. Lions and shark are apex predators. They're scary. I wouldn't want to run into one, but... But they don't run the world either. In fact, they have to be protected. And while Douglas Adams might suggest in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that really, you know who runs the world? The mice. Um, the mice secretly rule and they're only pretending to be so helpless and small so that, they can, that we won't disturb their devious plans to run the universe. But that's funny, but it's not true. Humanity runs the world and it doesn't run the world by accident. Okay, it's, it's God's plan. Now, it's not a total control kind of rule. It's not speak like God and creation will do your bidding. You can tell that by something that Andrew White pointed out to me last weekend, that, that we're told that we've got, to bring, we've got to subdue the creation, we've got to bring it under control. It's going to take time and effort to do that, isn't it? Uh, there's a kind of wildness to the beauty of creation. And it's not a self-glorifying kind of rule, just throwing our weight around because we can, right? That kind of tyranny is anathema to God in all kinds of areas. It's, it's a rule that's got to be exercised in reference to God, that, in a way that brings glory to God, uh, and that, that's there for the benefit of creation and the ordering of creation. And so at the end of day six, God looks and sees that God rests from his work of creation. And that's the Hubble Space Telescope kind of view. 
Well, what about the, the Van Gogh? Starry night view. Well, that's largely what chapter two is. No longer are we looking at the broad brush strokes and the big ideas, but, but the focus narrows down onto one particular man. In fact, the first man, Adam, as he's called, who, who God forms from nothing and then causes this beautiful, lush, fertile garden to grow up around him called Eden. And uh, it's this amazing place. Uh, and in the middle of the garden are two trees. They're really the focus of the garden. And, and the whole garden, in fact, centred around these two trees. I mean, you've seen spectacular trees. You know, you might love or hate the one that's in the backyard here, but it sort of dominates, you know, the backyard of the church and everyone knows it. Um, but in the middle of this garden is these two trees. Uh, and a lot of Adam's family drama are going to turn around these two plants. The first tree is called the tree of life, by which the man can, can eat of it and not die. Now that says something, doesn't it? That Adam is not immortal in and of himself. Right? He, there's something fragile or frail about him. And he only has longevity, in fact, everlasting life, because he's got access to that particular tree. That's what's keeping him going. It's able to sustain him and regenerate him and enable him to be nourished in a way that nothing else can. God's given him all the plants to eat, but that one's the one that's really keeping him alive. And it's interesting, at the end of the Bible, in the last chapter of the Bible, the, there's only one tree, and it's that same tree, the tree of life. And it grows over the river. Anyway, you, you have to look up Revelation to find that, but it's there sustaining. It's for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22 says. But the second tree here in the garden is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the tree that's going to cause all the big problems. And even though every plant's been given for the man to eat, including the tree of life, he's not to eat the fruit of that tree. In fact, if he eats it, what's, what's going to happen? He'll die. The day you eat of it, you'll die. And... from God now that might strike you as an issue as well that here is this thing that's going to cause such misery and pain not just to Adam's life and his immediate family but but to our race um, why does God put that in his, this beautiful place I mean even think about the title it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there's He's just described everything as very good, but, but here is something about evil in his garden. Now, why does God put it there? It almost seems wrong. What is it? Well, we're going to work that out next week when we hit chapter 3, and so you'll have to come back there for the answers to that one. Uh, see? Incentive. Uh, at the very least, you can say it's not sex, okay, which is kind of how it's been portrayed down, you know, the kind of Adam and Eve, you know, with the... The, the fruit and the covering up their bits and that kind of thing. That, that's not it. I mean, that's good, God's good creation from chapter 1, right? And you can see it at the end of chapter 2. In fact, the Bible reading at 8 o'clock was very interesting because there was a bit of free interpretation uh, at the end when uh, Adam wakes up uh, from his surgery. Uh, uh, he said, 
Now that's more like a god, said the Bible reader. <laughs> and I'm going to call her Wow Man. <laughs> anyway, John Mason is an interesting character. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> there's this tree and we'll work out, it's not sex, but we'll work at it next week. But notice that tree, the second tree, is not the only thing that's amiss in the garden. There's something in creation that God says for the first time is, is not good. Of all God's done, there's something that's not good. It's in verse 18 of chapter 2. Having set up the man, having given him his instructions, the work and care of the garden, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, it's not because he's lonely. Alone and lonely are two different things. All right, you can be lonely in a large group of people. Some people feel that loneliness is a terrible thing, but that's not what God's worried about at this point. And it's not, you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's, that's not because he's so helpless and incompetent at living, as most men are, uh, without even the most basic living skills like cooking your dinner uh, so that they can't get by without their wives. And it's not because he's going to suffer from domestic blindness all the time or anything like that. So why does God say that it's not good for this man or man to be alone? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's actually that he simply cannot fulfill his purpose for which God made him in the first place by himself. He can't do the job he's been given to do of filling the earth and subduing it without a her. God didn't make us to be amoeba who who can just kind of divide and conquer the world that way. Uh, And as the story goes on, there's no creature in all of God's creation that's able to help him either because he's different to all the animals and superior to them and they're just not compatible. And we heard what happens. God knocks him out, does the first rib surgery, uh, not to change his reproductive methods or to clone him, but, but to create something entirely new, something special and something wonderful, a perfect partner who sort of is just like him, made from the same stuff, but, but different too, someone who can help him to fulfil God's purposes. And so God forms the woman who comes to be named in chapter 3, Eve. And Adam's so ecstatic, he wakes up says, Wow, man! <laughs> and, you know, good on you, God! <laughs> he meets her for the first time. He, he, what did he really do? He burst into a song of joy. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's not just another creature like the animal. She's part of me. She's, she's made of the same stuff as me. She's made for me and we're to... It's, it's wonderful. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the author comments just in that last paragraph that for this reason, this reason, because of the way Adam and Eve were created by God, the way they were made from the same flesh, they were made for each other, they were made differently to each other. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the, the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. They, they delighted in each other. They enjoyed each other's company. Here they are, perfect for each other, living in harmony, able to eat from the tree of life and enjoy the blessing of God as they seek to glorify and honour God as they, they do the task that he's given them to do of filling the earth and subduing it together. 
And that's our origin story. The, the Hubble space kind of view and the up close and personal Van Gogh kind of view. But I just want to, for a couple of moments, step back and say, what, what are we meant to learn from all that? How does how it help us be grounded and, and understand ourselves and why we're here? Is it just there to explain why some people like gardening? Uh, just like our surfer friend likes the sea because his ancestors lived on a beach. Yeah, kind of, that's not it. What's God trying to teach us through knowing our way back origins? Well, lots of things. I just want to draw out four things, four implications. The first one is uh, <clears throat> it says something fundamentally important about God, about what he is like and who he is. At the very basic level, the two chapters together establish God's right to rule. The world belongs to God. It's as simple as when you bake biscuits in your kitchen, in your oven, you get to decide who eats them, right? They are your biscuits, unless you decide to give them to someone else. Please give them to me. No, <laughs> actually, don't do that because I'm trying to lose weight. But anyway, God gets to decide how and when and where things should happen in the world. God is God because he made everything like this. But it says more than just that God owns us. It says lots of things about his power and his majesty and his being. God creates out of nothing. He, he creates just so effortlessly just by speaking. It establishes something, as we've seen already, about the power of his spoken word and why it is that his word can cut through and divide soul and spirit later on in the New Testament. He's not just a, a giant space alien who's you know, inconveniently powerful and may get in the way like in Star Trek, the original movie. Uh, or I think Star Trek uh, 6 or 5, they did the same movie again. Anyways, or like Galactus in the Fantastic Four, who's just this force going through the galaxy, destroying stuff. He, he is far, far greater than that. But he's also the ultimate, and I think this is really challenging, he is the ultimate free being. He creates under no compulsion. Nothing is forcing him to do it. And as a friend of mine puts it, he creates with no restrictions, with no budget, with absolute freedom and total design flexibility. <laughs> he is the master. He is far bigger, better, brighter, freer, more majestic, more wonderful, more powerful, more purposeful, more deliberate than we can possibly imagine. And so I want to ask, is your view of God too small? I think what most people do, be they Christian or non-Christian, is try and domesticate God. You know, he's like our big brother. He's, you know, he is our friend, but it's an unequal friendship. He is transcendent, <laughs> enormous, wonderful, and, and he cares for us. It, it's, it's almost too good. <laughs> is your view of God too small? But that brings us back to us, because 
we're made in the image of God. I skipped over it on the way through, but God says in 126, let's make man in our own image, in our likeness. And then a couple of verses later, he, he creates us in his image. It repeats it three or four times. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, different people want to uh, take it in different directions. Uh, some say it's got to do with being creative, uh, just like God's creative. Uh, and this is a kind of very popular Uniting Church kind of view. That So we form art and make music unlike the other creatures because God's a creator of awesome artistry. And, and we fulfill our humanity when we express ourselves artistically and you know, do our crafts and things like that. That is what it means to me. I don't think that's it, right? Uh, some of us are not arty at all, um, and that's okay. Um, uh, we'll, we'll come back to why in a minute. Some, some say to be in God's image means that we're relational in a way that the other creatures aren't, that we form societies and, and create family bonds. Although, I mean, the ants do that kind of too, so in a, in a different way. But it's and, and they say it stems from the fact that God is a God of relationship and he's relational. There, there is an us in God, which which is there, and it's it's a nod towards the Trinity, uh, which you find out later in the Bible. But while that's true, while we can be creative, and while we are at a basic level highly relational beings, that's not what it means to be made in the image of God. A couple of years ago, uh, I met someone who'd been in North Korea. Actually, went over as a missionary, lecturing uh, in rice production to the Koreans as if an Australian Christian could know anything but anyway uh, but he came back and he said one of the the most shocking things he just hadn't thought about when he went over one of the most dramatic things you notice is that the only pictures that are hung in any public space are all pictures of the King Jongs right King Jong Il or King Jong Un uh, that, that is the only legal kind of picture you can have in public. Mao did the same in China. Stalin did the same in the USSR. Saddam Hussein had that giant statue of himself in the middle of Baghdad. Uh, there was that famous footage at Desert Storm 2 when the tanks pulled that, that statue down of Saddam. Why? Why do they have their image plastered all over the place? Because that's what they're doing. They're putting their image everywhere. Why is the Queen's face on our coins? Because it's a, the image is a reminder of who really rules. And that's what it means to have this unique blessing and privilege of being made in the image of God. We are the reminder to the universe that it is God who rules. And that he's kind of put us here as his agents to do that. And the, but the Bible uses that idea of being in the image of God over and over again in a couple of different ways. Firstly, to talk about our responsibilities to each other. Because of this unique privilege that we have, the way we treat each other is fundamentally important. So Genesis chapter 9, uh, you're not to shed human blood, you're not to kill people. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Uh, James chapter 2 says, With our tongues we, we praise our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue we curse other people who've been made in God's image. This should not be. People are so precious to God. Yes, the image may be marred. Yes, it may be deformed by human sin, as we'll see next week, but, but it's still there. 
And so how you treat other people is incredibly important. But being in the image of God is also meant to do something else. It's meant to help us understand Jesus when he turns up to save the world because he's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, etc., which we're going to get to. But places like Colossians chapter 1, 14 explain that Jesus is the true image of the invisible God. I mean, how do you have the image of something invisible? Well, Jesus, Jesus is. Um, the image in him is not blurred or fuzzy or marred. He is the perfect reflection of God's character and nature. He, he is true man, the true man and he is the true God. A third implication is to do with marriage and family. And I picked on this because it's really a hot issue. We're so consumed today by what I would call the philosophy of individualism that we've lost the sense that the basic building block of society is the family and not the individual. Family is the basic unit of society. That's not to say that you're somehow incomplete or abnormal if you're not married or that you're somehow no good or that there's never any good reasons to, to stay single. But Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that the way that marriage has been attacked and demeaned and trivialised over the last 60 years at least with repeated blows like the sexual revolution in the 60s, no-fought divorce that came in in the 70s, the decriminalising of adultery. It was a criminal activity to commit adultery in this country. Uh, and now the perversion of same-sex marriage. All of it is totally counterproductive to human life and flourishing. And we're seeing the fruit of our rejection of God's ways and will all over the place as society disintegrates around us. And is it any wonder? We've all had these changes and you think about it, are we seeing that people now, because of all those changes, are more loving and more caring and have more stable relationships, longer lasting, that you know, now all these relationships are lasting for 70 years of togetherness and beauty and um, there's more care and concern and everyone's more contented and satisfied and more together even in themselves as a result. Do relationships last longer? No. No. We're living in a society full of damaged, broken and miserable people who are destroying themselves and destroying each other. Here is marriage as God envisaged it. That, now, it's not everything the Bible's got to say and it's not, it doesn't answer all the questions about divorce or anything like that, you know, kind of things. But there's more to say. But, but here's marriage as God envisaged it right at the start. The coming together of two people of opposite genders, both of whom are equally valued and loved by God, but who are also profoundly different and complementary to each other. Men and women, it's astonishing that you have to say this and that no one believes it. Men and women are not the same as each other, right? And that's a good thing. And we're not interchangeable with each other. And the whole thing is meant to bring about a, a profound unity. In fact, so close that they're no longer two individuals now, but one whole new thing. Which is the reason why marriage 
is the cause of the greatest joys in life, if it's going well, but it's also the source of the greatest misery and pain when things go wrong. And, and this unity is meant to be lifelong and totally exclusive. You, you leave mum and dad to be united to your wife. It's united in your home, united emotionally, united in purpose, united sexually. Uh, indeed, sex is the great physical expression of being this one new entity, of this being this one new flesh. Sex is a great thing. Um, it, it's built into God's good design of us, and, and it's not just there to help us have kids, although it's a pretty handy way of doing it, and a fun way of doing it. <laughs> um, but it's also there to, to join us together, to help us bond. It's kind of like superglue. Uh, and, and as superglue, it does its job very well at bonding us to those who we've been sexually active with, right? Which is why it should only be used in its rightful context in marriage. Because you, you superglue yourself to someone who you're not actually joined to. And just like when you glue your fingers together accidentally when you're doing your airfix models or whatever, what happens when, they come up, when you have to pull your fingers apart, right? It hurts a lot, doesn't it? Because you're leaving a little bit of your thumb on your finger and a little bit of your finger on your thumb, right? You, you lose something of yourself in every sexual encounter and stuff. It, it's, um, and so you don't superglue yourself to someone you're not being covenantally joined to in marriage because in, in that covenant, it, it bonds you as it's supposed to. But outside of that, it just does damage because... You haven't made the promises and you don't know whether they're sticking around and you know, they come and go. And in fact, you know, the disintegration rate of de facto marriages is twice that of de jure marriages. And it's even bigger. It's another double that if you slept together before you married, uh, even before you moved in. It just, it just does damage because of the way God made it. it. It's a wonderful thing for the right context. Final implication, let's move on. I want to draw is about work and rest. <laughs> who, who likes work? Uh, anyone? There's a few people. Uh, who loves their work? Uh, uh, who hates their work? All right. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> work is not just a necessary evil in God's world. It's actually a good thing. We were made by God to work. That work is frustrating and tiring and meaningless and difficult and full of bitterness and angst uh, and so on. It's all due to the curse, which we're going to see next week. But though work is good and important, it's also not the be-all and end-all of our lives. Because God gets the end of his work of creating and, and what does he do? He rests. And not just because he needs to save some energy so he can get worked again on the next day. Because there is no next day. There's no day eight. In fact, Hebrews 4 tells us in the New Testament we're still in day seven somehow. And, and in fact, we're able to join God in his day seven rest if we'll trust in Jesus. Now, that does say something to the workaholics who never take a break and never take a holiday. You've got to understand, the world is not going to fall apart if you leave your laptop at home and stop checking your email, right? You are not the 
most critical thing in the universe that's holding everything in your business together, right? And you've got to leave it behind. It'll destroy you otherwise and your family. Rest is the goal of work. There's a, the point of work is to rest. It's not just an interruption to the worst, to, to the work. But the true rest that God's talking about is not just the godless hedonism of our age where you, you throw off all bounds and just do what you want to do and you know go forward driving like you've always planned and fishing and blow the family and who cares what they do. Right? It's, it's not abandonment. Uh, our rest, our true rest is to be found in God. And that can only be found when we come to Jesus, the one who said, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, as it's talking about this seventh day issue, says, today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest when he entered the land, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. You've got to find your rest in God. Ultimately, you'll find it in the new creation, in eternity, just with the tree of life and not that other tree. Find it in him. It says something about the way we, we do our, our breaks, right, and our weekends, that it's to be God-focused in some way, just at least reflecting on God and, and thankfulness. That's why church is on the weekend, but, you know, but society's changed the whole way the week works anyway, but uh, it's not good for the community. But no be godless, find your rest in God, enjoying his creation by all means, but thanking him and and enjoying the benefits of being his and and finding rest for your souls as the Lord, as you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. Father, we thank you for these amazing chapters. They don't answer all the questions we want to ask, but they answer the most important things that you want to tell us about why we're here and who you are and who we are. We pray, please, that we would humbly accept your word, that you would not, we would not uh, treat you just like a big brother or a friend or someone we could ignore but that you would be our master you are our creator and our owner please help us not to reject you or your ways for our lives we pray that we would delight in what you say about marriage and about work and about rest and that we would find our rest truly in you father please be with those for whom uh, they've been severely hurt in these areas in their lives and who are still suffering because of it Please watch over them. Help us to care for each other in the midst of that pain. Help us to be the family that they might not have otherwise. Uh, and we pray that you would be at work in us and through us, that you might bring rest to this country that's racing from you, that doesn't care and is ignoring you and destroying itself. We pray for your mercy and that we might go as your people with this great news of true peace, of true rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.